Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Dear listeners, I hope you and your families are keeping safe and well during this incredibly challenging time. We don't currently have access to a studio and can't meet guests in person, but we do want to continue bringing you podcast episodes which share inspiring and uplifting stories of women in leadership. While we still have a few podcast episodes to put out which were recorded before we all heard the term COVID-19, our next set of recordings are moving online and I will be meeting my wonderful guests over video call. While the sound quality may not be as high as with the studio recordings, I hope the discussion will be every bit as valuable and enlightening. We've got a fantastic set of guests lined up, some of whom are leaders in the medical world and can offer guidance and wisdom during these difficult months. I hope you enjoy this special set of podcasts and if you're able to, please rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. It really helps us reach more listeners with our message of a more gender equal world. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest today is Dame Sally Davies, who until October last year was the Chief Medical Officer for England, the most senior government advisor on health matters. She was the first and only woman to ever hold this role. She's also been a member of the World Health Organization Executive Board and now serves as Master of Trinity College at the University of Cambridge. Sally, until recent weeks, many people would not have thought much about the Chief Medical Officer. Now we find ourselves hanging off their every word, no matter where we are in the world. Can you describe the role of the Chief Medical Officer and what it was like to hold that job? Well, it was an incredible honour. And to be a flag bearer, I think, as a woman, actually does put more pressure on you. It definitely meant that I was called the chief nanny of the nation, which I thought was sexist. But um, what we have to do is think hard about the public's health. And most of the time, for me in Britain, that was not about the NHS services. It was more about the preventive health, the health improvement and health protection. And so, of course, all emergencies came under that. I was the one that 
with the backup of scientists, had to advise government when we had the Novichok poisonings. In 2009-10, I was not there for the first wave of the flu pandemic. I was actually running research for the NHS, but I was there for the third wave when we had even more deaths and, you know, dragged back from holidays by ministers for Ebola in West Africa to talk about what needed doing, were we responding effectively, and to talk to the public. Some people call the role the nation's doctor. So it's complex because it moves around. And I'm a haematologist, a specialist in sickle cell, and then I became a researcher. So I have a broad background, but I'm rather pleased that my successor is an infectious disease specialist. So he has caught the present horrors of COVID and he is expert. And can you imagine what the chief medical officer in the UK or indeed other chief medical officers around the world are going through now? Can you give us an insight into what would it be like? Well, it's very pressured because what you're trying to do is stay on top of the science on one side. What should we be doing? The services and what's going on and the limitations because no one is prepared for something as bad as this. And then the pressures which come from ministers because they clearly want it sorting out and they want to show they're in control. The media, which again is pushing and raking over every little thing and the public demand. Put that beside your own desire to get it right and to save lives, and it's a very pressured role. You've referred then to you know people not seeing something like this coming. Did you ever imagine that the world would be where we are today? Well, we did a lot of um, practice, as did you in Australia, of pandemic planning, but it was always for flu. So that is a respiratory-borne virus, and we thought that would stand us in good stead. I think it's shown that we didn't practice everything. We didn't think through the testing well enough. And there are other things that we clearly didn't have ready. But would anyone have ready? It's a question of how much planning can you do? And we did a lot and we did some really good planning. So I'm quite proud of what we did. But then how fleet of foot can you be when it happens? And how anticipatory can you be as you watch it develop? And what's giving you hope at the moment? I mean, one thing that's certainly happening worldwide is it seems the scientific and medical communities coming together and they're focusing on the research and vaccine and, you know, other things that are going to make a profound difference. How do you see all of that? What's keeping your spirits up? Well, the first thing is, of course, um, actual nature that we historically have epidemics and pandemics and survival of the fittest as nations and society, we come through. Interestingly, here I am sat in Trinity College and there were the plagues in the mid-1600s, which actually, because we closed down as we have done now, passed us by. But Newton, of gravity fame, is famed for having, actually, it's not quite a correct story, having discovered gravity during one of the plagues. I think the way people are coming together, whether it's about the science and working together on treatments, vaccinations, whether it's in the service, the stories of heroism of nurses, doctors on the front line, but also the volunteering, the support from people in the community for the vulnerable, 
taking medicines, taking food and everything. So it's how societies are coming together and working together, whether it's on science or to support others. Isn't that wonderful, the way it's happening? And I am loving the memes and the little videos and everything on FaceTime and WhatsApp and and Zoom. I mean, I'm now doing masses of things by Zoom. We were cooking supper with our daughter on Zoom last night. She was cooking hers, it looked better than ours, and we were cooking ours. Unfortunately, on Zoom, you can't lean in and taste it, though, can you, particularly if hers looked better? I'm going to take you back now to your days when you grew up and when you first started to think that you might want to be a doctor, because I'm sure one of the things that struck people as we've uh, watched the coverage of the pandemic is how gendered it is. Most of the experts, most of the politicians who are there at podiums every day telling us what's going to happen next are all men. So as a girl growing up, what made you say to yourself, I want to be a doctor? Well, actually, I'm an oddity because I didn't know what to do. I got to the age of 16. I had quite decent exam results. I was better at biology. And I remember my mother saying, hmm, you're good at biology. You quite like people. Why don't you do medicine? And I had a godfather who was a medic, no one else in the family. So I talked to him and it seemed a good idea. So I went off to do it. And actually, after the first couple of years, and and it's on record, I I found it quite brutalising. I think in the way that the doctors now will find it, the people where we had a rationed health system, particularly at that time in the mid-70s, where I can remember a young woman, for instance, not being allowed renal dialysis because there was a choice between patients and she didn't win. And I thought this was so unfair and how it was, many things were handled. I was so brutalized. I actually gave up for four years. And then, in giving up, discovered I had a, a vacation. And I think what our young doctors are going through at the moment, and our old ones on the front line, is very similar. Not enough ventilators. Who do you choose? Seeing people die in circumstances where you can't hold their hand and their families can't be there. I think they're experiencing some of that brutalizing and harrowing things that I saw in the early and mid-70s. And I fear many of them will say, after it's over, I can't do this. I hope, like me, I went off, married a diplomat, went to Madrid as a diplomat's wife. I wasn't a good diplomat's wife. But I realized I wanted to do medicine and came back really energized. And I hope that if they do give up, that they then come back energised when they've found themselves again. Do you think we'd be a bit better now at supporting the mental health and well-being of our frontline doctors and nurses as they go through something like this? Would there be more understanding about how spirit-crushing making those choices are, literally, between who lives and dies? I think there is more understanding But talking to our younger daughter, who's a first-year doctor on the front line, they are so stretched, so rushed, that the extra services aren't available. So it is a question of kindness in a team and support in a team. I had that too. It wasn't enough for me. Perhaps I was rather a gentle soul at that stage. I don't know. I think we're going to have to do an awful lot of catching up later on. And when you look back on those days, I mean, brutalising is a very strong word. 
Was that really a perspective about the system? Did you think that there was a gender element? And, you know, when was it in your life that you first said to yourself, gee, there's something different that happens because I'm a woman? Oh, there was a gendered element. There was in medical school. I think we were 13 women out of a year of 110. I mean, looking back, very inappropriate things. So when we did surface anatomy, I was made to stand on a stool while they drew on my legs where the muscles were. I mean, you know, and I thought that was normal at that stage. But you wouldn't allow that now. Getting back to starting on the wards, there were very few women. The nurses were not used to women doctors. I remember the sister on my first ward saying, well, you think I'm here to make you tea? And I was saying, no, I don't. And she said, you're here to make my tea. And it was actually quite a difficult environment. And I was definitely bottom of the pecking order. But I came from a fairly sparky academic background. And my father, who was a theologian, taught me that I should ask and challenge in order to get to the right answer. I mean, at the age of six, challenging bishops, how do you know God exists and things? So perhaps I was better prepared than many women would be in that I was prepared to challenge and push back. But it wasn't easy. And I do think it was a a gendered and sexist environment. And can you give us an example of one moment of pushing back, of challenging? I do love the image of you as a six-year-old, you know, at uh, Sunday lunch challenging a bishop, but in the context of uh, your medical education or medical (laughs) practice. Well, I, I mean, just silly things like I remember I did something on, my, on one of my early ward rounds and the consultant said, Miss Davis. And I said, in front of the patient and the whole team, I appreciate you think I've got this wrong and I'm really sorry. But I know that when you're happy with me, you call me Sally. When you're content, you call me Dr. Davis. Miss Davis is not acceptable. And he said, oh, I didn't realise I did that. I said, you don't to the men. Ah, interesting. He didn't again. Oh, so it got a result. Yes, but I wouldn't be invited to everything because the boys were going for a beer. As it happens, I can't stand beer. And I didn't like pubs because of smoking of them. So I didn't mind in one sense. But on the other side, we all know that a lot of medical networking used to take place in the pub over a beer. So I was being excluded Though I think the funniest was my haematology professor, who I was very fond of, but he would do this long ward round on one morning of the week. And at a certain point, he would walk into the gents and continue discussing the patients. And my friend and I, she she and I would stand outside, arms crossed, thinking, what are they saying about patients we're looking after? And I got so fed up, I took to propping open the door with my foot and continuing the conversation with the professor while he was in the gents. That stopped it. That's a fantastic image too. Now, you've said about being a woman that you don't think your gender means that you bring anything special to the role, for example, the role as chief medical officer, beyond the willingness to take a more collaborative approach and perhaps a relative lack of ego. What did you mean by that? A lot of men who achieve these great offices set out to. I mean, I do meet young men, I've not met a young woman actually, who say to me, I want to be a chief medical officer. 
And I said, well, perhaps you should not only enjoy the journey, but recognize that it's an issue of timing, who else is around, and you may not make it, but they're invested in the office. I wasn't. It was only about a year before the post came up when my predecessor said to me, Sally, you'd be a good CMO. Why don't you apply when I go in about a year? And I said, huh, why would I want it? <laughs> so we had this very funny discussion. So it wasn't that I was invested in the office or had an ego. In fact, I don't. My father and mother, as I said, were academics, and they brought me up to believe that you should have a really good debate. doesn't matter if it's an argument, but a debate to get to the best answer. So I brought this very academic, researchy background in. And in fact, what all my team said was I would get to a conclusion quite quickly. But if they had a better argument, I would shift. And I was always debating, thinking aloud and everything. And that isn't an ego-driven way of doing it. So it was a different style. It was very, I set out to make evidence my USP and to be collaborative and debating. And then if a decision needed taking, I would take it. So that was a kind of different approach, a much more academic approach. And just unpacking some of that, I mean, the fact that you didn't put yourself forward for the role of chief medical officer, that you waited for someone to ask you, the fact that your initial reaction was to be taken aback rather than, I'd be fantastic at that. And, you know, the fact that you didn't take a challenge, an intellectual challenge, a debate as an undermining of your leadership authority. I mean, how gendered do you see that? I mean, at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, we look at a lot of research about these things. And to us, in those sorts of things, there does seem to be a gender dynamic based on the research. But how do you see it? If, if you had been, um, you know, Bob instead of, instead of Sally, would you have had your cap set on the chief medical officer post 10 years earlier? Would you have put yourself forward? Would you have said, I'm just going to blitz this, I'm going to be the best ever? Would you have been more offhand or dismissive if people put account of you to you? Can you war game through that? So you and I know the research that a lot of women are waiting for a tap on the shoulder. Little princess, this wasn't about that. My response was, why would I want to do it? Because actually, I had the world's best job. I was running one and a quarter billion pounds worth of health research. I loved it. And I wasn't sure I actually wanted to do the job. So that's quite different from, oh, it's too much for me. And so I had to think myself into, so do I want it? What is it? And what, what would I do with it? And then to watch other people circle and think about it. Actually, in the end, I went to the permanent secretary of the department and said, I've been thinking about this and I have decided to apply because my present role reports to the CMO and I don't respect any of the men who you are going to shortlist. So I will apply. I will keep the research portfolio. And if you don't appoint me, that's fine. But I will not report to the new CMO. I will report directly to you. So actually, I played it quite powerfully. It was not a, that I was the weak woman waiting to be tapped. I thought through what could I do with it. And I thought through 
who else would get it and how I wanted it. And for women who are listening to this podcast and who are now shaking their head going, I could never do something like that, what would you say to them? Was there a little voice in the back of your head saying, oh, Sally, don't be so pushy or they're not going to like you if you push it like that? Because a lot of women have that voice in the back of their heads. Yes. I think over the years I've come through that. So don't let me pretend that this is how I've, I've always been quite challenging as talking about me as a young doctor. I've also had my fair share of worries and the imposter syndrome. But I've learned. I believe in the Peter principle, which is that a lot of people end up appointed to the job one above the one where they function best. I've managed everything I've done. So my only question to myself is, when does the Peter principle play out? Can I do the next level? And the only way you find out is by doing it. And I probably can. So that's where I come to. It's fantastic. Now, during your time as Chief Medical Officer, of course. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So you haven't ended up with this one with the coronavirus, but you did during your tenure have to deal with the UK's response to the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And you said back then that you were very proud of the volunteers, the doctors, the nurses, the lab staff, the government officials who went out there and put themselves at risk to do an amazing job. Can you just talk us through what it was like to be um, at that time in such a responsible position when Ebola broke out? And as we know, this is an incredibly deadly disease. I mean, we've all spent a lot of time now talking about death rates from COVID-19, but Ebola is truly a deadly disease. Absolutely. Uh, Well-treated. You might get 30 to 40% deaths, but always in outbreaks, it, it starts much higher until you've built the right facilities and got the local staff knowing how to treat the patients. And it's scary because though it's not that easy to catch, you can't catch it respiratory-wise like COVID, any bodily secretions, and a lot of the early cases are always spread through funerals and everything, which means that you're getting at the heart of a community. How do you conduct your rights and the social fabric of those communities? It was scary because it was going up exponentially, The number of doctors that died in Sierra Leone was horrendous. It's decimated their health service, as is COVID in some countries like Italy and Spain. And we are having doctors and nurses dying here with COVID too. So the questions were to understand the disease. And luckily, we had a lot of good scientists who could explain that to me understanding how best to treat it. And the present chief medical officer, my successor, Chris Whitty, was actually the chief scientific advisor at DFID, our aid agency. So he and I worked in tandem with him thinking about Sierra Leone and me thinking about the impact on Britain. And then you get to the clash between science and 
public pressure. And one example was that uh, the science says that to do entry screening based on high temperatures is not cost effective. So, you know, we go to um, our emergency meetings chaired by the Prime Minister, they're called COBRA because it stands for Cabinet Office Briefing Rooms, and say, it's not cost effective. And the Prime Minister says, but I want to do it. And actually, I then was able to tease out that the reason he wanted to do it was he wanted to show the country and his electorate that he had done everything possible to protect them. I could see the advantage of catching people coming in from West Africa and saying, these are the symptoms. If they develop, ring this number, Public Health England, and this is what you do, so that we were giving them something. And I said, well, if you feel you need to do it to show you're doing everything, there is an advantage. Are you prepared to pay the bill? And he said, yes. And I said, then fine. I have no problem with you doing it. Interestingly, this time on COVID, the scientists said it wasn't cost effective and our prime minister said, all right, we wouldn't do it. I actually think that was the right decision here because it's so much everywhere that you either lock down and stop aeroplanes and traffic or you don't bother. But you can't do it through entry screening. And we know that now because of all these asymptomatic carriers. But just teasing out what does the science say? what needs doing, what do politicians want? And in the moment, taking the decisions and flexing around that is quite tough. And then talking to the nation about it, doing all the media. I still remember after one um, broadcast, my sister saying, you looked really grumpy. And I said, I was trying to look serious and she, because I felt serious. And she said, well, you looked a bit grumpy. And I think that was when they really started that and our alcohol guidelines, of course, a lot of the press calling me the chief nanny, which is totally gendered. And, was, and that was quite difficult. You know, usually I just ignored it or laughed about it. Though there was a famous time where on the Today programme, which is, of course, our very famous news programme on Radio 4 every morning, one of the interviewers, Nick Robinson, instead of waiting till the end of an interview and then saying, and Chief Nanny or something, said, some call you Chief Nanny. And I was so angry that he started like that. I turned around and said, I think you're being gendered. I think that's unacceptable and I won't have it. And there was a whole Twitter storm in support of me. And there he was writing me a note saying, I'm not sexist. And I was saying, you are. <laughs> I did it without thinking, and it was my back against the wall that I challenge and I fight back. I mean, how frustrating was that? I mean, there you are, Chief Medical Officer, an incredibly serious job talking about issues that really matter. Will Ebola end up in the United Kingdom, a deadly disease? You know, what is alcohol usage or the misuse of alcohol costing in terms of people's healths and lives? And people are critiquing like that. I mean, how, how frustrating is it? Well, I did ask him, would he call a male CMO the chief nanny? I said I would watch once I retired. And I have not yet seen them call my male successor chief nanny. But I'm waiting for it because that would then mean it wasn't gendered. And do you think for women in the medical profession, women who might aspire to a public role like that, that seeing that kind of treatment, it puts them off or do they just shrug and say... Well, I guess there'll be a bit of that, but the job's still worth it. Do you have a sense of that? 
I think it does put women off because how do you learn to cope with it? And, you know, I have learnt. I've been very well trained media-wise by the department. Our comm staff are fabulous and they would really, everything I did, I was prepared as if it was a viva exam. You know, what are the elephant traps? How will I sound? How will it come over? And I've learned a terrific amount thanks to them. But if you haven't been through that so that you know, okay, I can do this in any way, I am a fighter, it's quite worrying. Are they going to say things like that to me? What will I do? How will I say it? So I think it does put off some of the ones who would turn out to be very good with some training. And so we need to do more training. And in an age like this, watching as you get to do now rather than being in the middle of it, so that having that sense of distance, which can give you an ability to see it all, I mean, what do you think um, are some of the big problems in dealing with a pandemic like this? And I don't so much mean the scientific problems, though feel free to speak about them. But I've got more on my mind this balance that you've talked about between political decision-making and the expert advice and also the communications when people are at home for countless hours, they can scroll every tweet, watch every Facebook post and clearly end up with a lot of junk information as well as hopefully get themselves onto some credible sources including what chief medical officers and other scientific experts say. So it is difficult, you and I both know this, And there's a desire for news. Our ministers, led by the Prime Minister, are doing a 5pm conference, news conference every day. And actually, people around the country are logging in. What's fascinating to me is you can see that some ministers are lousy at it. They're talking down to us, the public, or they're bossy. Others are too nervous. They're clearly not leaders. And it really is sorting them out. There are a couple I'm happy they're in their roles, but others you think, ooh. But the scientists, my successor and the chief scientific advisor or deputies are there and being calm and giving the advice. So the communication is there. I think the media so far are doing in Britain a very good job of being supportive but questioning A bit of challenge, but most of them are taking the line of, look, we can do the uh, looking back later on. This is where we are. How are you going to go forwards? And recognising the need for science. We have a wonderful institution called the Science Media Centre run by Fiona Fox. I don't know whether you know it, but she finds experts to talk to journalists all the time about different things. And she's been running conferences for the science journalists with experts so that they get the background so when stories come up they know what's going on and when a story comes up she'll find them an expert to quote and comment. So I think we're getting very responsible reporting in general. I'm looking all across the globe of course I look to the states and get a lot of interesting things from there. And I really can't uh, not take you up on that. How are you seeing the US in comparison with the UK or any other nation's response? Well, I'm glad we have an NHS. I think is my big take-home message that care and testing is free at the point of access because we know that poor people, whether they are black and minority ethnic or just our own autochthonous poor, 
are prone to health inequalities. They are more likely to have a bad outcome, both in getting the disease, in having comorbidities, and a bigger death rate. So you have to have the safety net of the NHS to support them. And what we're now seeing coming out of the States with the African-Americans getting the disease more often and then dying at much higher rates is tragic. And we need to support our people so we don't get those dreadful outcomes. I think the lack of national unity and science-based advice visibly is making it very difficult for some states. And clearly, politics is coming in much more. You can read an analysis which suggests that the red states were slower coming in with restrictions and lockdowns than the blue states. I don't know enough about it, but I am glad we have an NHS. Absolutely. And I think people at this time are all looking for some hope and some ways of getting through. So if you've got a crystal ball that tells us when we'll be out of this, we would love to hear your prediction. But in the meantime, what are you enjoying doing? I've uh, been reliably informed that a bit of bread making and jam production might be happening at your place. Is that right? (laughs) Jam making and chutney, yes. I've discovered a website called Marquee, and they've given a a reduction because of COVID, where you can get the Royal Shakespeare Company opera plays. So I'm watching lots of things that I missed and I wish I'd done before. I've got the exercise bike to look forward to. But above all, I'm trying to structure my day so that I am leading a normal day and to talk to our daughters and our family through FaceTime and Zoom and Google Hangout as much as possible so that actually we're in much more contact than we ever were before. And that's right with the pressures of being locked down and for our daughter on the front line in the hospital. And do you think we'll come out of this wiser? I'm hoping that we come out of it with a new attitude to flexible working. You know, one of the things we've talked about for a long time, which would help women's careers and to close many of the gender gaps that there are around work, would be for virtual and flexible work to be more embraced. And we're all having a big lesson in how to get that done. So I'm hoping we take some of that with us. What are you hoping we take out of this? Well, I hope we do, and I think we will. I hope that we will come out recognising how important health services are. I mean, we shouldn't have people pleading for resources for everyday care, and then we get this on top of it. I hope we come out of it kinder to our neighbours, and I believe we probably will, uh, with much more social cohesion. But I also hope we come out of it with not just the digital at home, but the digital across our health service, because that's what I know about. If you look at how health services are changing because we can't do face-to-face and people are pressured, that is the type of change we've needed for ages. And we've given it a big step up. I don't want us to lose that. And the other area that's fascinating is we're managing to aggregate data in the interests of getting better outcomes from COVID, where before ridiculously heavy governance and box ticking of of little brains was getting in the way. I hope we can keep that because actually patients will benefit 
the public will benefit. And as I've shown in one of my CMO annual reports, if you keep people healthy, then the economy does better. So if we can continue this partial unlocking, it's not a full unlocking of the aggregating of data, it will change our lives. Sounds like some great things to come out of it. Now, I'm going to move to our concluding questions. We always uh, ask guests a set of questions, and we always start with a fact to respond to. So your fact is, according to an analysis of 104 countries conducted by the World Health Organization, roughly 70% of the global healthcare workforce is made up of women. Currently, of course, they're at the front line saving patients' lives. Given how feminised this workforce is, when do you think we will properly recognise and pay the contribution of healthcare workers? Isn't that a good question? I think what's important is to look at each group and make sure the women are getting equity within their groups, because on an average, we have a lot more women in the lower paid areas, but you're not going to pull them up to the medical levels. The evidence on women is in medicine is that on average they are in certain groupings that are lower paid. Is that because they're women? Is it for other reasons? We need to sort through that and move forward. I think when you take the biggest feminized workforce, nursing, one of the things that worries me is why do we see a small number of men coming in, but proportionally many more men in the managerial and leadership roles. What can we do to help those women who could do it but haven't recognised it come through? Because then I think pay will begin to sort its way through. But there's already work on arguing to our government in this country that nurses need to be better paid. And I hope that care workers and other people will have a better deal going forwards. I mean, it must be very difficult as a woman to be a care worker on a zero hours contract, particularly if you've got children or other responsibilities at home. How on earth do you balance it all, putting bread on the table and yet doing these other things? We need a fairer society. Can it come out of COVID? Maybe we can relight a fire from the embers of COVID. I hope so. What's the worst misogyny you've had to face? Oof. (laughs) (laughs) I think I brush it off so much that I don't even always notice it. I mean, I have so often been the only woman in a room. So one of the things I really hate and I've experienced, and whenever I talk about it, other women recognise it. So it's not, it's a pervasive misogyny. At a meeting, when a woman puts an idea on the table, oh, thank you, and moving on. Then a man puts the same idea on the table, oh, isn't Jimmy clever? (laughs) And every woman I've talked to recognises that one. And I actually talk to women about how they should handle that, you know, that they should come back saying, oh, I'm so glad you picked up on my idea, or talking to the chair about it. I've talked to them about how they should chair meetings, you know, so that if it if they didn't pick it up and it happens to say, oh, great, Jimmy, but Jemima put that on the table earlier. We have to be aware of that. So it's not one big misogynist event I'm picking up for you. I'm picking up this pervasive misogyny that affects 
almost all women, unless you've got so senior that they don't dare not listen. (laughs) I think whoever's listening to this podcast is going to be furiously nodding their head in agreement. Absolutely. Now, if for a moment you had all of the power in the world, what would you change for women? One thing. We all need to be learning all the time. I think I learned that expression from you. But how do we empower women? It's through education. And they need to learn their books. They need to learn their skills. But as part of that, they need to learn to believe in themselves and that they can do it. We can. Virginia Woolf says, thought and theory must precede all salutary action. Yet the action is nobler in itself than either thought or theory. I think that women need to recognise that evidence should underpin action, but that our gut response is usually the right one of compassion and moving to support and make things happen. I like that. (laughs) Thank you very much. Been terrific to talk to you. What a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We'll come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. Mm-hmm.